0: Mind if I push this up, uh, Davis? Okay, great. Uh, with my page turning here, it's uh, something I need to do. Anyway, great to be with you again. Uh, wonderful to be with you last night. I, between our uh, our time together last night and uh, this morning, I've come across a couple of things I thought are relevant, and I'd just like to help you um, well, I'd, I'd like you to know about that actually reinforce some of the things that we're concerned with addressing here. Um, there's something that uh, Plato said uh, in The Republic in Book Eight, and it's, it's I think, relevant uh, all the time, but in particular for the subject that we're addressing over these two days, and that is what is honored in a country is cultivated there. Uh, what. I'm addressing is uh, a subject that is ignored, overlooked, and even denigrated, Uh, and that's why we don't see much of it in terms of how, generally speaking, people think about households and family life in our society. Uh, There are a number of other things that that we honor, and we're seeing more of those things. Uh, We honor sexual perversity. We honor uh, emotivism. We honor Uh, self-expression. We honor those things, and that's why we see those things flourishing all around us. It makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? I mean, It's just kind of logical that this is the way things work. Uh, We don't honor motherhood. We don't honor women who have more than two children. Uh, Sometimes we don't even honor those who have two, (laughs) and it's starting to show. So I just came across something from NPR. Get this, National Public Radio. They're actually catching on. You know, it's kind of, kind of fun to see progressives and liberals deal with reality. Um, they do it in a very slow and uh, reluctant and grudging way. And when you read, you know, the treatment of reality by these folks, you can see there's just this acquiescence, but they're not going to give up any ground without a fight. And uh, there, the article was dealing with the fact that uh, South Korea is in crisis, a fertility crisis, um, the lowest birth rate in the world less than one child born per woman who can bear children. What do you think that means? Well, it means economic disaster for Korea. And everything that they're doing to address it, short of what needs to be done, is failing. They're trying to pay women to have kids. Doesn't work. Uh, they're trying to you know, uh, increase uh, family-friendly you know, fr- policies. Doesn't work. Nothing works. And we see this across the world, and it's also true in the United States. Forty-three states in the United States have the lowest birth rate ever recorded. Um, in the year 2000, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, so this isn't my you know, sort of uh, delirium here <laughs> that I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of like, uh, you know, kind of going off and uh, telling you things that I think are the case. I mean, I'm not like a big fan of the US Census Bureau, but when it comes to numbers of people, uh, they're probably the best source of information. <laughs> but uh, they tell us that by the year 2034, which is, you know, a little over, it's just 11 years from now, there'll be more people in the United States over the age of 65 than under the age of 18. First time in American history that that's happened. This is going to lead to a whole host of social ills. Uh, I've got some, I think, ideas that uh, will be, well, I think these ideas will be suggested as solutions. I, I, I think that we're going to see a strong push for euthanasia. That's the way materialists deal with these sorts of problems. Just get rid of people, it solves the problem. So uh, we'll see a much more stress on that. I think, too, that we'll actually see kind of almost brave new world approaches to, kind of, uh, making people. Uh, If we can't uh, incentivize uh, this, uh, and if it means that, you know, women have to uh, return to, uh, you know, caring for children at the expense of their careers, uh, there are going to be people who say, well, "Let's just make them in factories," and that's a formula for, socio, you know, for creating sociopaths. We know what you know what institutional child rearing does to a kid. All you need to do is look at what happened in you know former Eastern Bloc countries where they did it in mass. It messes them up. Um, anyway, so that's the situation we find ourselves in uh, in the United States too. Uh, 25% of young Americans aged uh, 18 to 34 are, uh, only 25% are married. Think about that. Only 25% of young Americans ages 18 to 34 are married, that means 75% are not. And of those, uh, 36% 36 of women aged 18 to 29 said that they're open to dating. Implies that the rest are not right. The situation uh, is uh, dire. We're part of the solution. You might not feel like you're part of the solution. You might feel like a pariah. That's probably how you've been made to feel, at in the place uh, the place of your employment, maybe even in your extended family. So sometimes people will you know uh, see a person like me or hear about a person like me, and they'll assume that. Uh, I don't have any sort of uh, familial connections to people who don't see things the same way I do. Actually, I do. (laughs) I've got a lot of people who are uh, strongly committed leftists in my extended family. Uh, And I can see the the, sort of the the fruit of that in their lives. Um, They're not happy people. They're some of the most miserable people you want to meet. So don't think you're missing out (laughs) on anything. You're not. Uh, I could go into my extended family and my relatives, but that's probably not uh, kind. (laughs) Give you all sorts of anecdotes. But anyway, so this morning I want to talk about fighting the principalities and powers, uh, which is what I've been uh, actually talking about in these last few moments without perhaps you realizing it. Um, This is a, a... a really rich passage from the book of Ephesians. is from chapter six, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness. The household and the church have always been under attack. And you'll see why by the time I'm done. But in our time, the fighting has gotten more intense. And frankly, we're getting kicked around. Uh, we need to get back on the offensive that's why I wrote a book entitled The Household and the War for the Cosmos. Some of you, I think, have read it. Let's review a few things about households. We can't do that enough in the world that we live in today. One of the ways that you uh, stress something and, uh, and, and sort of help people uh, see its importance is by repetition. <laughs> so I'm gonna say some things now uh, that I said last night, uh, but that, that's not because I've forgotten that I said them, it's because they're important. So just imagine a world without business corporations or social welfare agencies. Think about it. Just let that sink in. No business corporations, no social welfare agencies. That's only like 200 years ago. For the entire sweep of human history, there were no business corporations in the way that we can think of them now. Uh, there were no social welfare agencies in the way we think about them now. That was just not the case. They just didn't exist. Uh, where did people make a living and get help in time of need? In their households, of course, extended households. Um, and that's the way things were as I noted for the entire you know, sort of course of human civilization. The reason was that a household was an economy. And household economies were based on some productive enterprise, usually farming or trade, and sometimes they were subsistence economies. Other times, they produced goods for the market. Either way, they were nearly the only industry. Uh, They produced food, clothing, and just about everything else. And on top of that, they were social welfare agencies, educating the young and caring for the elderly. The word economy, as I noted last night, is derived from two Greek words, oikos meaning house and nomos meaning law. An economy was the law of the house, and it directed its members toward their common good. That's another thing to note. It wasn't as though these were just little fiefdoms or some crazed controlling man just drove everybody, you know, into the ground to to feed his own ego. That's the way feminism presents it. They were the means of our survival uh, as human beings. Um, So that means that households were not buildings. They were authority structures. Authority structures that served the common good. That's why a father's authority in antiquity was unquestioned. People depended on him for so much that life without him was hard to imagine. He adjudicated household disputes. In a world where the police were never a phone call away, he defended and enforced its boundaries. And he spoke for the household's interest in public forums. His job was to govern his household and represent it in the larger community. And a father was so important, his untimely death often led to breaking up a household and the distribution of its members to his relations. A father gave a household its vertical dimension, but verticality didn't begin or end with him. Fathers were subject to higher authorities. They were like the centurion that Jesus commended for saying, I am a man under authority. You could say that fathers were the middle managers of the cosmos. This is an important thing to let sink in. Again, our past has been maligned. We libel the dead because they can't defend themselves. We selectively read things from the past to reinforce our points. We don't read honestly and thoroughly and fairly. All you need to do is go back and read the stuff and you realize that the people who lived in the past were not fools. They were not moral monsters. They were people like you and me. They had their faults, but they had their good points too and in many respects they're smarter than us. We want to regain their wisdom, we need to go back and read them. They don't let you read these people uh, in many places in the academy today. I'm the vice president of the Academy of Philosophy and Letters, which is an academic association that has members from all over the country. I'm in touch with what's going on in secular institutions as well as Christian colleges. I want you to know that the past is not well represented in our institutions of higher learning. It's just not being taught. There are political agendas that are being served and without apology, forthrightly, explicitly, that basically filter the past. So this brings me to the most important duty of a father. He represented his household in a cosmic hierarchy. Heavenly laws were the basis of the home economy, not his arbitrary will. Nether misrepresentation. And the welfare of a household depended on the blessings of heaven. We see this with the book of Job, right? Job represented his household before the Lord, prayed for it, interceded for it, I should say, made sacrifices for it. Um, so a father was embedded in a structure he did not invent, and he had responsibilities that he did not choose. He did his duty. That's a word that we need to recover, duty. Do your duty. As you know, things at home are different today. Our households are not economies in the old sense, they're more like recreation centers. We've outsourced productive enterprise to the workplace and when it comes to family welfare. Now the young, the old, the sick, and the out of work all depend on social service agencies. The unexpected consequence of this has been a downgrade in the father's authority. That was unexpected by most people, but not Karl Marx. He saw it coming and he rejoiced. The Marxists hate the household. All you need to do is read them. (laughs) And you can see that they've had the household in their sights since the middle of the 19th century. They've been after it relentlessly. So in our time, uh, we do have the problem of what is a father supposed to do anyway? What is he in charge of? The remote control, the, you know, where we're going on vacation, you know. So all the practical work that fathers had done in the past have uh, no longer uh, you know, no longer find themselves under his uh, oversight. So uh, bringing this home, without a point of reference by which a father and husband can be said to represent higher authority, households are little more than networks of emotionally satisfying relationships. Apparently, they're not so satisfying. Marriage is now justified solely on that basis. In other words, if it makes you happy, then go for it. If it doesn't, then don't. We don't rely on it for anything, but we do. That's a lie. We rely on it for a lot. Our social stability, the next generation, the care of the aged, we rely on the household for all those things, even now. In fact, it's all coming back home. I don't know if you've noticed this, but just the cost of care when it comes to the elderly is so exorbitant. People are bringing mom and dad back home. It was inevitable. So when it comes to raising children, fatherhood has also been repurposed. Dad is now a buddy. By the way, uh, our our church is sponsoring a conference in May uh, entitled the Traditional Fatherhood Intensive. It's a two-day event. Rory Groves is going to be there, and Nathan Spearing, and then I'm going to be there speaking. And my talk is uh, uh, one of my talks is entitled, uh, How to uh, Be an Authoritative Father and Not an Authoritarian Monster or a Buddy Dad. So, you know, we got this idea that you got to choose between authoritarian monster and buddy dad. <laughs> there is a, another op- option it's the authoritative father who orders things in his household. To, uh, in the interest of his children and his family, and has enough self control and self mastery that he actually elicits the respect of his family and children. His own inner constitution is reflected in the constitution of his home by the way that's an interesting thing to think about when we talk about constitutions in the United States, we tend to think of it a written constitution, something that was like written down after a bunch of guys debated it but the American Constitution was actually just t- turning the American Constitution, sort of the, the order of life and the way people understood life, into a written form. In other words, every nation has a constitution. We, it, you kind of get it, get it this way when you think, there's uh, an old way of talking. I went out for my morning constitutional. What did that mean back in the day? I mean, I took a walk, <laughs> took a walk. Why? For your health for my health. I took a walk for my health. In other words, my constitution is my, is when I refer to my constitution in, in the old-fashioned way I'm referring to, to health, bodily health. And that's when we talk about a political body, a constitution is how it's ordered. Uh, not the piece of paper, but how it actually is ordered. Our constitution in the United States is a written document, but there's another constitution that is the fact and our health is not good. Uh, we need to recover. And that was why they wrote it down. They feared that we would get sick <laughs> and that we could use this written document to get well again. That was the whole idea. Anyway, so um, the goal of uh, Buddy Dad uh, is the friendship uh, and uh, the nurture uh, of, the, and of the happiness uh, of his child. Uh, And as, uh, you know, sometimes you hear people say, I just want him or her or it to be happy. Consequently, the the idea that you're duty-bound to your family is now passe. Duty can't be reduced to emotionally satisfying relationships. Duty impresses a structured hierarchy onto our lives. Duty never says, you do you or go ahead and do what makes you happy. Duty says, this is who you are do what is required. Now, one of the things I've observed when I've talked about that matter is that people actually sit up straighter in their chairs, actually are, you know, start to lean forward. They're actually stirred emotionally in a positive way when they're called to perform their duty. Think about, you know, someone in the military, a man maybe who is told do your duty before a battle. It stirs him. It strengthens him. It gives him some resolve to do a difficult, painful task, and it's ennobling. Doing your duty is not denigrating. It's ennobling. You can say that woman, that man, has done his duty or her duty, and that's uh, a, that's praise, right? So. Um, Now some people think that that all of the changes that we've seen are for the better and that the old-fashioned households have been replaced by open floor plans with plenty of room for personal freedom. And The people who think this way say that Christianity must adapt or die. There are at least two problems with this. First, the freedom these people celebrate is an illusion. We're more servile than ever because we're more vulnerable than ever. Our institutions are so large and we're so small we're like little interchangeable cogs and vast machines and we're seemingly powerless before these um, monstrous institutions. And the other problem is that historically the household in its hierarchical structure, its roles and its duties were at the center of the Christian faith, they weren't peripheral. And In case you haven't guessed, I think we need to bring the old household back in some form adapted to our time, if we're going to get Christendom back. And I don't think this is crazy. I think there are at least two things we can do. First, we need to recover the productive household, and I talked about that last night. There are lots of uh, things about that task that are challenging. I don't have any illusions about that. I was asked last night, does this mean we all become Wendell Berry and go, you know, and plow with a mule? on?" farm in Kentucky. No, I don't think that's the case. I like Wendelberry; He's a great guy. But no, I don't think that's uh, what we're called to do. Uh, There are many marvelous things about uh, the world we live in today that I'd like to preserve, and I think we can. I think the beautiful and uh, uh, kind of ironic situation we find ourselves in is that because of the Internet, we might be in the best spot in the last hundred years to recover the productive household. And there are lots of ways it's happening, Uh, but uh, I think we're in a good good time because reality is forcing us to bring some things back home that really should never have left. It's going to be hard work, but it's worth it. So that's one of the things that needs to happen. Now for the second way. We need to recover a larger frame of reference within which to build our houses. Uh, We need to get back to the cosmos. Now, what is the cosmos? When people use the word cosmos today, they tend to use it as a synonym for universe, right? So, uh, you know, when you talk about universe and you talk about cosmos, you're talking about the biggest thing of all, you know, right? Looking through telescopes, seeing distant galaxies, stuff like that. But the words don't actually convey the same idea. Universe stresses the singleness of reality, literally something that turns as a whole That's what the word means if you look up the etymology. It's a fine word even though we've forgotten its meaning. Similarly, most people have no clue when it comes to the origin of the word cosmos. One of the reasons is pop science. You can actually see it, uh, or you can actually see what I'm talking about by watching the old PBS television series, Cosmos. Remember that with Carl Sagan? Some of the older folks here do. I know there's an updated version, uh, but... The older one uh, had uh, Carl Sagan, who was a quirky and uh, kind of uh, strangely endearing atheist scientist who hosted the show. Now Sagan revealed the agenda, agenda that informed the series when it famously intoned in the introduction I'll tr- I won't. I won't try to imitate his voice, <laughs> but uh, you, I can still see him there on the beach. I don't know if you remember that scene. He's on the beach and the waves are crashing and he's sitting on a big boulder. The cosmos is all that, that is or was or ever will be. Our feeblest contemplations of the cosmos stir us. There is a tingling in the spine, a catch in the voice, a faint sensation as of a distant memory, a falling from a height, We now are approaching the greatest of mysteries. Now, it was a clever opening, and we should give Sagan credit for it, but we should also note that he plagiarized it. (laughs) It's an echo of the words of Christ in Revelation, I am the Alpha and the Omega, uh, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. What Sagan is implying, of course, is that um, there's no God. All there is, is the material universe in which we dwell. Uh, the doctrine of anamnesis is also uh, n- uh, present in this, uh, s- this, this introduction, which is fascinating. The that, 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 that statement, a distant memory as of falling from a great height, directly from kind of platonic philosophy, philosophy uh, the notion that we have lived before uh, we find ourselves in the, li- the bodies that we now dwell in. I don't know if Sagan really realized that uh, that he was doing that, but that's where that notion came from. We should also hear an echo of the Apostle Paul from Ephesians. Cosmos is a Greek word and he used it in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. Uh, You wouldn't know it since usually uh, the word is translated with the English word world. Uh, But here's how it's rendered in the ESV. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world." Uh, If we insert the word cosmos for world, it reads, He chose us in him before the foundation of the cosmos. Different implication, wouldn't you you agree? Uh, It's a shame because the word world doesn't have the same connotations as cosmos did in the first century. When we say world, generally we mean the place where we live, the earth. But we can uh, be grateful that the ESV does use the original word in Ephesians 6.12, where it takes the form of an adjective, cosmic. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. This brings me back to the origin of the word cosmos. In the first century, it was a way of seeing things that Christians and their pagan neighbors actually shared. Not even pagans saw the cosmos in the way that Carl Sagan did. The cosmos was more than matter in motion for them, although there were some materialists in antiquity, you know, the the atomists and so forth. But generally speaking, people didn't think of the universe in the way that Carl Sagan does or did. It was an ordered thing, the largest order of them all. That's what the word actually means, it means order. It includes everything, even invisible things, and it also housed microcosms, small orders, little orders that depend upon the larger one. But there is something ironic about the way we use the word cosmos today because in a real way, we mean uh, by it almost the opposite of what it used to mean. When Sagan insisted that the cosmos is all there is, he explicitly rejected the ancient view that an order depended on an order giver. Instead, Sagan tried to explain how matter orders itself without the benefit of intelligence, one of the dumbest things I think you can do. Some people in the past believed that the cosmos took its present form through a violent process. In their stories, the gods fought to impose an order on chaos. But in biblical cosmogony, We see a difference, and uh, these differences uh, are important as we compare them with other creation stories. For one thing, it's not a violent process, but proceeds in a much more workmanlike way. Uh, But it is what biblical cosmology had in common or has in common with all the others that I want you to see. When it came to the cosmos, Christians and their neighbors agreed that someone was in heavenly heavenly places giving orders. That's what they agreed on. Now, speaking of the heavens, the ancient cosmos came with a top. Time for a a little more political incorrectness. Hierarchy means sacred rule. Hieros for sacred and arche for ruler. Even today, we know in our bones that an order must come with a top. Being high means you have oversight, right? It's what, we mean, it's what it means to be an overseer, it means you're higher in the hierarchy. And being low means that you look up to your rulers, as when someone says, of someone he admires, I really look up to him. Does it literally mean that the person is as tall as your pastor, Dwayne? No, he can actually be short, <laughs> right? I can look up to a short person who is morally praiseworthy, right, and it presents me with a good example. So Sagan's cosmos doesn't come at the top. It has no normative vertical dimension whatsoever. It's just space, as an outer space. And paradoxically, this means that Sagan's cosmos and the cosmos of the atheist is flat. Uh, because without verticality, it's impossible to make meaningful distinctions or to say that some things are more important than other things. Sagan, who liked to wax poetic, uh, was known to referring uh, was known for referring to his viewers as star stuff. Do you remember that? You are star stuff. And I think he implied, you know, meant that that was like something to be proud of or something. like Now, why that should flatter anyone was left unexplained because frogs and rocks are also star stuff, right? And that reveals uh, why Sagan's cosmos can only have any charm at all You have to sneak in a little of the old cosmos here and there to make it charming because on its own, it has no significance, no beauty, no meaning. According to the old way of seeing things, stars are a lot more than stuff. We see that when we read books like Voyage of the Dawn Treader by C.S. Lewis. In that book, a youthful version of Sagan named Eustace Clarence scrub (laughs) Probably the greatest name in all literature So Eustace, whose name uh, rhymes with useless, and I think that's on purpose, (laughs) remarks when he meets a star in person, in our world, a star is a huge ball of flaming gas. To this, the star replies, even in your world, my son, that is not what a star is, but only what it is made of. Now we have all of this in Ephesians. We have heavenly places. We see heavenly places referred to in chapters 1, 2, and 3. We have regions below, we see those referred to in chapters 1 and 4. And Christ has traveled the intervening span, we see that referred to in chapter 4 verses 8 through 9. But it's in the in-between space that should, uh, we should see things that are of interest to us, but for at least a couple of reasons, one, uh, because it's a problem. It's the intervening space that's the problem. We see that referred to in chapters 1, 2, and 6. And second, it's because this is where we live. (laughs) We live in the place where the problems are. uh, At our level, we're not the only occupants. Surrounding us are principalities and powers. And we're not just talking about City Hall, although I think that uh, City Hall is included uh, in that, uh, that reference to principalities and powers. Paul actually names their chief the prince of the power of the air. No elected official that I know has ever said, hey, that's me, prince of the power of the air. Vote for me. Uh, uh, But it's a a great moniker, though, because uh, the reference to air conveys a sense of being immersed, surrounded by a spirit that is as real yet as invisible as air. It also again refers to this intervening span because in the ancient view this sort of sublunary area, this space between the Earth and the Moon is where we see all kinds of lunacy (laughs) and uh, things that are problems. The problem with this layer of the cosmos is that its print is insubordinate. The layer that we live in is like a province ruled by an ambitious and unprincipled governor. And that's, by the way, what Lewis was getting at in his space trilogy with the first book Out of the Silent Planet. Uh, The Silent Planet is ruled by a fallen angel that is uh, no longer uh, in communication with or fellowship with the rest of the cosmos. So this is rebellious uh, territory in which a rebellion is occurring. People living in it don't necessarily know this, although they feel the effects of the conflict. According to Paul, though, this layer of the cosmos will eventually be brought to heel beneath the feet of Christ. He refers to that in chapter 1, verse 22. Today, uh, many Christians write off Paul's words about principalities and powers as though they're just poetic in in nature, Uh, if they think about them at all. Uh, Oddly, many Christians even agree with Sagan that the cosmos that, uh, that we live in is essentially a meaningless place. But that's not acceptable. It not only does it downgrade the cosmos and the lordship of Christ, it doesn't even do justice to poetry. And when we think about poetry today, we essentially think about it as self-expression. You know, if you've gone to poetry slams or whatever, it's all about sort of the inner angst of the poet. right? The poet is not actually talking about anything more than himself and, and his or her frustrations. But poetry, particularly epic poetry, is actually uh, endeavored to tell the story of reality. If you Know, go back and you look at Homer, you look at you know, Virgil, you look at Dante, you look at Milton, The the poetry is intended to tell the story of reality. You know, even uh, Samuel T- Taylor Coleridge and his poetry, um, you know, he's uh, my favorite poet, but uh, they're talking about reality I remember listening to NPR some time back, and there was a report from Afghanistan, which was fascinating. The national poet was giving a reading, and I think it was thirty-five thousand people came to hear the reading. Now, in the United States, you know, a poet can sell thirty-five books is considered a you know a great poet and a bestseller. <laughs> and the reason that's the case is because we really don't want to hear about the angst <laughs> of the poet. You know, it's just not all that interesting. Well, okay, you got problems. I've got problems too. Maybe I can relate to your problems, but please go away with your poetry. The great poets told the story of reality, and people knew that they were being referred to, and they had a role in the in the the epics, the epic sweep of the stories that they told with their poetry. Um, I think that our civilization. One of the indications that our civilization is uh, making a comeback will be when that kind of poetry comes back. Anyway, I don't think that's for a while. So uh, when the light of Christ's glory appeared revealed to pagans that there was really nothing to the old gods, but Christ's glory also filled the empty spaces and the church moved in and grew. Christians cleaned house. Christianity was a capacious and vibrant place too, and beneath its soaring heights new things were built, things that the world had never seen before." Now, there had always been edu- you know, education and institutions uh, to teach, and there had always been you know, uh, people who were dedicated to the welfare of the, of the sick and uh, the, the, the people who had been harmed. But in the West, under the influence of the Christian faith, we saw universities established. Nothing like that in the history of the world. And hospitals established, as well as the greatest civilization the world has ever known. Now, it wasn't heaven on earth, of course. That civilization had its faults, it had its sins. But on the scale of relative goods, it was the best that ever was. That's the thing to keep in mind. When we talk about Christendom, we're not saying it was faultless. We're just saying, compared to the others, it was pretty good. <laughs> okay, would you rather live in Rome? Would you? Not me. <laughs> there are a lot of things that we could admire about the Roman, uh, you know, Roman civilization, but I don't want to go back to that. Now, the telescope didn't destroy that civilization. Atheism is responsible. Atheism is a way of seeing that doesn't see. Atheists tell us that there is no intrinsic meaning to things because there's no God to give them meaning. Now, some atheists were urbane, others were violent, and yet others popularized the new creed. And when I think about violent atheists, you know, people like Lenin, Mao, they come to mind. When I think about you know, urbane atheists, I think about people like David Hume. You know, When I think about popularizers, I think about people like H.G. Wells. Um, but they all agreed in the end everything amounts to nothing. Everything amounts to nothing. Now if at first fools, and I, and I mean that in the, in the correct biblical sense, the fool says there is no God. Fools rose and applauded. There is no, nothing above so we can rise. That was the, you know, sort of the, the, the siren song of the 19th century. But wiser fools, wiser fools like Nietzsche, knew that no heaven means no up, there's no up, there's no basis for judgment, saying one thing is better than another thing. Everything is moving but going nowhere, outer space swallows everything but is never full. Now we have philosophers that say things like, this is Peter Singer who teaches ethics at Princeton, a boy is a pig and a pig is a boy, in other words we have no basis for judgment to distinguish between one form of life and another. And consciousness itself offends some of our brightest lights. Now Bertrand Russell wrote a book entitled Why I'm Not a Christian. I could write a book entitled Why I'm Not Bertrand Russell. And in 1903, he wrote this in a letter to a friend. He would never say this in public. I have been merely oppressed by the weariness and tedium and vanity of things lately. Nothing stirs me. Nothing seems worth doing or worth having done. The only thing that I feel strongly worthwhile, let me repeat that, the only thing I feel strongly worthwhile would be to murder as many people as possible so as to diminish the amount of consciousness in the world. These things have to be lived through. There is nothing to do about them. That's before two world wars, before the Great Depression, before the Cold War, before the atomic bomb. He actually met Lenin and was repulsed. He actually had a conversation and, he, and I think it, it, was a, it, was, it was a tonic because it helped him to see where his own philosophy naturally ends up. He pulled back, he recoiled and said, this man is a monster. And he was. So the war for the cosmos today. The empty cosmos of the atheists has left us empty. Are we surprised? But empty places don't stay empty for long. The cosmos is being repopulated. Jesus told a little story along this line in Matthew chapter 12, verses 43-45. through 45. Quote, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So it will be with this evil generation. Now, Isn't it fascinating that Jesus is referring to a person and then applies the lesson to a generation. I would say this applies to us. One of the reasons why there's so much insanity in our society is because of the void. The void is being filled. The last state is worse than the first. So neo-paganism is worse than paganism in some really profound ways. It's not just a revival of the past. The neo-pagans are not even people that people in the past would have wanted to say, "I'm with you." <laughs> they in many respects are more with us than they are with the Neo-pagans. Now what we need to do is uh, learn to re-wage the peace, or learn to or we need to relearn to wage the peace. Uh, there are many paradoxes in the world, and one of those paradoxes is this: If you want peace, prepare for war. If you want war, You know, take peace for granted, that's the implication. Now the Romans understood that. The Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, dealt with the situation on the ground and when it came to putting troops on the ground they were tough to beat. The Jews tried and lost badly in the Jewish-Roman wars. The Roman war wagon pacified them. How did it pacify them? By leveling Jerusalem, that's how it pacified them, by removing every stone from every other stone. When you think about what it took to do that, the Romans were pretty ticked. <laughs> they said, we are going to invest our energies in making sure this problem never happens again. And they did what they felt like they needed to do. You can go to the Arch of Titus in Rome and see the triumphal procession of Titus uh, memorialized in the base reliefs on the, on the arch to this day. And there's the, the, the candelabra, the great menorah, huge taken from the temple. They put that front and center to just remind everybody this is what happens when you mess with us, it's over. So they were tough. Now before that, Rome had brutally gotten its own house in order. The Republic had been constitutionally incapable of keeping peace over the vast territory it ruled. Standing armies were financed directly by their generals. Think about that. Civil war had been practically inevitable. In the end, Augustus defeated his rivals, and from that point on, there was no going back to the old way of doing things. The Republic was dead. Now, from the perspective of the people on the ground, this was actually a good thing. The triumph of Augustus was celebrated in works of art, and the reason for that is that it had just been like a lawnmower that just went right over you know, Roman civilization. Think about Sherman's march to the sea. That's exactly what it was like. Everywhere. Cities devastated in the civil wars. This is one of the reasons why, you know, one of the fascinating things when you read the book of Acts is every centurion is, is presented in a good light, and the Gospels as well. They're all good, solid guys. They were actually, centurions were counterinsurgents. They were, they were actually planted in regions of the empire and told, learn about these people, appreciate them, contribute to their way of life. That's why when you know this one centurion is looking for healing for a servant and he sends to Jesus for help and Jesus is on his way, we, we, we can see that the centurion understands Jewish law. He says, you don't need to come under my roof because he knows it'll make him unclean. You don't need to come under my roof. Just from wherever you are, just say the word and it'll be so. I'm a man under authority. I understand how this works. You say it's so, it'll be so. And then Jesus is like, This guy is great. <laughs> why can't you people be more like this guy? <laughs> this guy is a really upstanding guy. Just think of Cornelius, you know, in the book of Acts. Solid dude. Now, why, what, I think one of the reasons why these centurions, who were moral, you know, like morally sound guys, but also warriors, um, were so well regarded is because. Um, they were disillusioned with their own uh, civilization. They were looking for the truth because they were the guys who were the veterans of the wars. They were fighting their own people. And we're not talking about the Punic Wars. We're talking about the civil wars. So it's Roman against Roman to the death. And uh, I, it was, that's pretty disillusioning. By the way, the Aeneid is the story of the Roman people that uh, Augustus, commissioned to be written by Virgil in order to restore the piety of the empire, to restore the peace and the self-understanding of the Roman people, and their understanding of their role in human history as bringers of peace. Again, kind of ironic. But uh, one of the works of art was the Gemmae uh, Auguste, uh, which dates from the second or third decade of the the first century AD, uh, not long before Paul wrote the uh, book of Ephesians. The gem shows Augustus seated in a heavenly place. We know it's a heavenly place because he's surrounded by the gods. You have Neptune with his trident. You've got, they're all there. Um, It's a little base relief. And uh, you see Augustus sitting on his divan, making a declaration. He's got his hand like this. He's you know, proclaiming a law. And everybody thought this was great because now peace had been established amongst former enemies. So I hope you see what this implies about the peace of Christ, Christians believe that Christ is Lord in the same way that Romans believed that Augustus was Lord. Christ made rebellious authorities submit and that was why he is now seated in a heavenly place and he also governs a capacious household where former enemies live together in peace. That's one of the themes that you see addressed again and again in Paul's letters. What the peace we're fighting for looks like. Now, Augustus commissioned Virgil, as I noted, the greatest poet of the time, to compose that epic, uh, the Aeneid, about the founding of Rome and why it was destined to rule the world. In it, there is a protagonist named Aeneas, and he's a Trojan hero. By the way, the, the Romans believed that they were descended from the Trojans. I don't know if you, were, you knew that, but they really did think of that. that the, so when, when, they, when they swept over the east and subjected the, Roman, or the uh, Greek city-states to their rule, it was payback in their minds. They actually kind of thought about it that way. I got you at last. Now, um, Jews had their own epic, and it's found in the Bible, and it begins with the story of Abraham. They also believed that they were the heirs of the world. So the Romans believed that they were the heirs of the world. So in Elysium, in the poem, uh, and this, uh, and, uh, Aeneas sees uh, his father Anchises, and Anchises, Uh, gives the Roman people its commission. By the way, this is such a uh, broadly uh, sort of uh, known commission. It was on the walls. It was graffiti throughout the empire. And uh, Augustus, or I'm sorry, Augustine, in uh, the city of God, quotes from it, quotes from uh, the Aeneid, right in the first chapter, the, the very words of Anchises and his commission to bring peace to the world. Uh, the commission says that uh, the Roman people should uh, essentially defend the weak and subject the proud to the sword. That's the Roman peace. So that's, what they, that's how they understood the, the, their work, uh, what their, work that's their understanding of what it entailed. Now it, uh, that meant that they really believed that they were the heirs of the world. Uh, but the Jews also believed that they were the heirs of the world. And you probably can see why this is a problem. (laughs) You know, you can't can't both be heirs of the world. You know, either one is or the other is or neither are. Now there's another similarity between the stories of Aeneas and Abraham. Both end with a marriage. Um, In the Aeneid, Aeneas wages war for a princess. Uh, And when his warfare has ended, he's supposed to take his throne and reign with her. Interesting thing is the, the Aeneid was, was unfinished and Virgil uh, commanded that it be destroyed, that it be uh, burned, uh, but the emperor got wind of it uh, and intervened and that's why we have it. Uh, Augustus said, I paid a lot of money for that, <laughs> I'm not going to let it be destroyed even though it's unfinished. Uh, so it doesn't actually end, but that's where the story is supposed to end is with that marriage. Abraham's story ends in a remarkably uh, similar way, <laughs> albeit he's not the one that wages war for a queen. That's the job of his heir, the son of David. After he wins the greatest victory of all, he wins a bride, and the Bible ends with their wedding day, and they lived happily ever after. That's what we see in Revelation chapter 21. So this brings us back to households. Of course, what I'm referring to is Christ and the church. The church is the bride of Christ. So Christ wages war, wins his bride, they are united in matrimony marriage. The Christian household is more than an economy. If making a living were all there were to it, we might just as well let the modern economy take its place, but that's not all there is to it. We get a glimpse of the more uh, in one of the more politically incorrect passages that Paul ever wrote, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave uh, himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, did you notice what Paul has done in this passage? The duties of husbands to wives and wives to husbands reflect a higher order. That order points to the end of the world. Something to note about the word mystery. Um, When we hear the word today, we tend to think about Sherlock Holmes. We think, oh, there's a mystery. And what we mean by that is there's a puzzle and we need to solve the puzzle. Uh, And once the puzzle is solved, there's no more mystery, right? That's a very modern understanding of the term. The word mystery in antiquity Uh, Mysterion is the Greek word, literally meant or it implied that there was something hidden that was not necessarily obvious in something else. So the word that is translated into the word that we use for the Lord's Supper, sacrament or, or baptism, the Greek term for that was mysterion the mystery of baptism, the mystery of the Lord's Supper. In other words, there's some spiritual reality that's real and present that's there, that's not evident uh, uh, empirically. You know, in other words, we can't cut open uh, the Lord's Supper and find Jesus. You just find more bread. <laughs> but there's a mystery. There's something that's real that's not evident on the surface. And that's also the case with the mystery of one flesh. So the nexus of the Christian household is the conjugal union of a husband and wife, and in both Genesis and Ephesians we're told that this makes them one flesh. Paul tells us that that's a mystery. One flesh begins with the conjugal union. That's why it was once called consummating marriage. But it's just the beginning. One flesh also refers to the natural issue of that union in children, but it also uh, includes things, a union of interests, of goods, and a common life, and the legal term for this is joint tenancy. This meant and still means that what goes for one goes for the other. And Paul tells us that all of this applies to Christ and the Church. What belongs to the Church belongs to Christ, and what belongs to Christ belongs to the Church because they are one flesh. The New Covenant helps us make this connection. Here's why. Because sinners are condemned to die, Christ died for his chosen bride. And because Christ was raised and glorified, the church is raised and glorified too. The technical term in Reformed theology for this is double imputation. That's a kind of accounting term. We're good at kind of accounting when it comes to Reformed theology. We're accountants. We're the accountants of the the Christian world. Uh, But uh, what a That accounts for is the one flesh union of Christ and the church, and I hope you see what this implies about the Christian household. It's kind of a fun story. When I first gave this talk, it was at uh, the Touchstone Conference in Chicago. And the Touchstone Fellowship of St. James, who publishes Touchstone magazine and other things, uh, have this really important conference every year and I was honored to be invited to to be one of the speakers. So the room is full of Catholics and Orthodox guys and and lots of Protestants too. it was remarkable. Afterward, the Catholics and the and the Orthodox, the Eastern Orthodox guys, came to me. Afterwards, they said, "That is, you know, you know, that was great." I said, "Basically, I preached the most reformed sermon you've ever heard," <laughs> but you didn't realize it. <laughs> anyway, but they but they they got it. But they just don't they don't use uh, the term double mutation. It means, in a real way, that the Christian household is a picture of the end of the world. And what I mean is is that it shows the purposes, or the purpose of the world, the cosmos, and it shows us what the new world, Cosmos 2.0, will look like. And it's a sign that reads, this is the way the world will end. Not with a bang, nor with a whimper, but with wedding bells. That's the end of the world. Now I'd like to talk uh, just about a couple of things uh, as I conclude. Concerning guerrilla piety, I don't mean gorilla the animal, I mean insurgency, guerrilla fighting, there's a war going on and you have been conscripted and given your armor. You see the armor described in Ephesians chapter 6 verses 13 through 20. But like Christians in the empire, uh, we are hopelessly overmatched on the ground. The principalities continue to rage against the rule of the Lord of the cosmos. Inhuman machinery menaces us. Technology tracks us. By the way, here's something that's kind of interesting to just note. I don't think you can really do much with it, but it's just good to know. Uh, as I noted earlier, I'm a member of the Academy of Philosophy and Letters. We have a close relationship with a magazine called the American Conservative. And, and we had some people from uh, the National Security Administration, retired uh I guess you'd call them snoops, <laughs> spies, who came and told us what the uh, NSA does and what it's up to. And, and two, of this, two of the guys actually uh, told us about when they listened in and all of Jane Fonda's phone conversations at the order of President Nixon. So it was, that was amusing. <laughs> what were they talking about? <laughs> that kind of thing. But uh, everything, everything is recorded. Every single text, every single email, Every single voice message you leave on the phone is recorded. It's all in Utah in a vast, unbelievably expensive memory hole where it's all kept. So you're being spied on. In fact, uh, they know we're having this meeting. Your phone is telling them we are all here (laughs) right now that little location thing that helps you find your way to different places that's so convenient, that's the other side. So you might want to invest in one of those little envelopes that doesn't let people know where you're going. (laughs) Now, I'm saying there are actually people out there with, like, listening devices listening in right now to every word, but it's recorded. If they want to get access to it, they can do that, and they do do it. I have it, you know, on the authority of the guys who did it. That's the world we live in. So we're all tracked. Increasingly, we're being manipulated. Progressive ma- multinational corporations standardize us. Mainstream media seeks to indoctrinate us. And state-run education and healthcare make us ever more dependent on government largesse. And all these things are arrayed against us. I think one of the best things about COVID is how it pulled back the kind of the curtain on all this kind of stuff. I think that there's far less credulity today. Than there were there was just two or three years ago. I think most people know that we're, you know, it's psyops all the time. There are people messing with our brains. Now, in spite of these things, Christ really has one. We wrestle with defeated enemies. And we have two strategies that can be remarkably influential in the world so long as they are microcosms of Christ's cosmic order. The first is the household of God. So when Alexander the Great swept across the east, he left behind a trail of 70 cities, all named the same name. Guess what he called them? Alexandria. (laughs) What's it gonna be this time, Alexander? Well, the same as it was last time. (laughs) I want them to know who conquered them, it's me. It's like George Foreman, you know. What's uh, the new son gonna be, George? George Foreman. Why? Because I want them to know who their father was. <laughs> it's the same, same thing. He did name one for a horse, his favorite horse. Now, it was more than an ego trip. It was intended, uh, these cities were intended to promote the Greek way of life, to proclaim through demonstration the good news of the Greek way of life throughout the the regions of his conquest and they were model communities, gifts of the divine Alexander Alexander, to enlighten his new subjects. Now the churches the Apostle Paul planted throughout the Roman world performed the exact same function. And in those houses the stewards worked to make sure that those communities put the benefits of Christ's rule on display for the principalities and powers. Here's what what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 10, through the church the manifold wisdom of God is made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So when you meet for worship, there is an audience looking in, and it's not necessarily a friendly one, uh, but it's in, your, your worship is intended to demonstrate the wisdom of God. Now it's important to keep these things in mind because when the church is turned into a water boy for secular culture in the name of relevance, We lose touch with the true standard, and there's something of a paradox here. When the church chases the world, it loses it. But when the church chases heaven, it wins the world. That's the paradox. The other strategy is the household. Uh, Your household is the fulcrum of the world. It gives uh, the church, the Christian faith, the leverage, and the principalities know that, and that's why they're obsessed with breaking it down. You may wonder how your small state could possibly threaten the powers that be. Just remember, though, that your household, if it's ordered by the household code in Ephesians, reflects the rule of Christ. And all things connect in the little tune that your household sings carries. So fight the good fight. Go home, build your house. And if you do it the right way, you will give the world a glimpse of things to come. There is nothing more terrifying to the principalities than this. I lived in Cambridge, I went to Harvard, i get telling you the truth, they are scared to death of us. Don't be afraid of them. Because in the end, the principalities will bow and confess that Christ is Lord. Thank you.